out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Alan Ryder, musician and editor of the iconic 1980s commentary post-punk fanzine Adventures in Reality. We uh, got together recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other exciting stuff. Just as an, um, yes, another little bit of a background. He, Adam, is the author of two books that have come out very recently, in fact last year, both on Fourth Dimension Publishing. One is titled Adventures in Reality, The Complete Collection, which is the fan scene that he did. And also he's done another one, a book titled Tales from the Ghost Town. And this is on the commentary punk fanzine period of 1979 to 1985, with an excess of 50 titles published um, over that period during the punk fanzine heyday. Anyway, that's just a little bit of uh, information. You're going to find out lots more, so let's cut the chat and get straight to it. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that fascinating and exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know it's a classic, dear listener. But anyway, Alan, tell us now, tell us everything. I mean, I'm kind of a similar era to you, actually. So I do remember, uh, you know, myself, I've got, I've got two brothers and kind of jigging around to Mark Boland records because the glam thing was very big when I was growing up and just kind of miming to, to Lowe's. So, so Metal Guru was one of my favourites. And my mum actually loved Gary Glitter. I know we can't mention his name anymore, but um, she, she loved him at the time and all that glam rock stuff, Sweet, David Bowie, yes. uh, Roxy Music, all those bands. And I think a lot of acts that you interview here probably said the same thing, that that they they're very showy those bands but they're also a bit radical as well i know people often say sweet look like a lot of builders in drag um because they were big beefy kind of guys dressed up with um you know with makeup on but i think that was the first kind of incarnation of of that kind of uh breaking down genders a little bit you know men yes that, 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 those haircuts i mean they were quite you know amazing i think they used to make you your dad, especially, quite annoyed when they looked at them on top of the pop, saying, "Are they boys or girls?" I was lucky that my my parents never really did that kind of you know look at that, that lot, get their hair cut kind of stuff. They <laughs> they they very much encouraged me. So a bit later on, when I was um, dyeing my hair strange colours and things like that, the neighbours used to be, you know, whispering to my mum, you know, oh, you know, how how can you let him? do that kind of thing and she was like you leave them alone oh um, nice well that's very yeah. good isn't it so where did you grow up so in Coventry right so I grew up in in a it was a tiny terraced house in Coventry it was myself and two brothers just in one very small bedroom and um not particularly well off we had no central heating you know there was like ice on the windows in the winter and you could yes see your breath coming out and stuff like that and there was just like a coal fire and uh a telephone eventually um so you know it was it was pretty basic i would say but um we were happy you know as they say you know we were happy um, yes did you did that. did um i mean obviously you can't remember it but was there still a bit of a legacy from the second world war with you know coventry which got so bombed um 
I think, I mean, there's still a lot of kind of derelict places, as there were for, for many years afterwards, even into the 70s and, and even 80s, were still undeveloped bits of, of, of land that were there. But, I mean, the main legacy really was my, my, my mother was from Coventry and she was there during the Blitz. And so she, her house was bombed. They had a, an exploded bomb in the garden. She did all the things about collecting shrapnel and laughing at people's wallpaper when the outside of the house was blown off. And she went to school once and there was nothing left at school, but the school gates and a teacher standing there saying, there's no school today. And um, her <laughs> saying, yes, result, you know, running home, very excited that they could have a day off school. And it was only a day because they, they uh, started again the next day. Um, so, you know, she, was, she had plenty of stories about that. But I, I think Coventry, for me at the time, really was quite an industrial place because it had a, it was rebuilt in, in a kind of brutalist architecture yes. way um, afterwards and had a lot of car industry land, a lot of heavy industry. Um, was Dunlop based in Coventry? Dunlop was. Uh, they made forklift trucks in a place called the Coventry Climax. Jaguar, Daimler were there. Um, there was uh, a place called Cashies that saw these little name tags that you used to have in the back of your school uniform. Yeah. Um, used to make those. Um, so they, these were all kind of around and, you know, we were living very close to those places. But then, of course, it all declined in, in the 80s with the, the recession um, and all of the kind of strife that you had then, the social strife with, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher was in power. So... You had all of that stuff going on. And I think that really influenced uh, a lot of what people know about Coventry is obviously two-tone and specials because it created that racial tension mm. in the whole country and in Coventry, which was very multiracial and multi multicultural. And we didn't want it. We didn't want National Front people strutting around the streets sort of um, causing trouble. So everybody banded together and that's why I think Two Tones started and it obviously hit a nerve because it just took off massively and rapidly and became this global thing eventually. Yeah, absolutely. So was it the case then that you were sort of also leaving school around the, the late 70s, if not 1980? Uh, yeah, I'd left school by kind of 1980s, but late, late 70s. So I was a bit too young to really go and see the, the punk bands. So when Sex Pistols played Coventry, I, they were playing, you know, places I couldn't get into because they were licensed places. And I was a bit too young probably to be able to go into that, that corner environment anyway. Yes. But post, post-punk, so you're talking about 78, 79. Yes. And then, but prior to that, um, in common with most people, I think at school, it was all like kind of heavy metal bands. So it was Queen and Judas Priest and those kind of bands. And first live band I saw was ACDC in a little place in Coventry. Was um, that with Bon Bon Scott? Bon Scott, yeah, yeah, in a place called Coventry Theatre, which was not particularly big, um, not by today's standards, certainly. And one of those venues that used to do like panto and plays, and then they'd put on gigs as well. My That's God, the atmosphere must have been absolutely electrifying to see ACDC at that stage. It was. It was really. I mean, that was the first gig I saw. I was at school and it was deafening. I had a school trip to the zoo the next day and I could not hear a thing. My ears were ringing. Yes, I can imagine with um, dear uh, Angus. Yeah. Very exciting. Did all the thing where he went into the crowd on, on Scott's shoulders. And uh, yeah, it was, it was when I would 
probably looking back, regard them as more equivalent to a punk band now with the energy that they had then. Yes, I know. Well, well my friend Andrew, he, that was his first gig. That was, I think, Bond's, Bond Scott's last ever gig, it, you know, when he went to see him, which was probably 1980. My first one was Nine Below Zero, which was good, but it wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't quite that good. But then other people went, well, I went to see the Wombles. I think that was Stuart Lee, actually, went to yeah. see them. So, the first um, record I ever had was by the Wombles. Well, we love Mike. Well, we do <laughs> 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 well, Mike, Mike Bat. There you go, a legend. Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, seventy nine. Thatcher gets in. We get Thatcherism, and then we get the Falkland War. Then we get the Miners' Strike, and then we get Greenham Common. So the eighties suddenly becomes incredibly horrendous, you know, in so many ways. But obviously not because you know you get the the left and right suddenly part like Moses part in the seas, really, isn't it? And and then I think this is why there were so many bands during that period because. I just I remember, you know, you know, being unemployed wasn't such a big kind of it didn't feel like a bad thing to do. And it was almost a bit of I don't know, well, that's what you do. There's no future. Not I'm not quoting Johnny Rotten. <laughs> but, um not Johnny, not dear old Johnny. But yes, but but it was that sense of you know unemployment, job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes. If you got a thousand pounds in the bank account, which was always a bit bizarre, but somehow people did. Because um, thousand pounds, you could almost buy a house for that. So um, yes, and then you could be. And so there was a lot of indie bands that started because there wasn't much else to do apart from get drunk and smoke stuff. So there you go. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> so so did 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 you stay on at school when uh, I think you said you didn't? Did you? You left. Uh, no, I, I did stay on into the sixth form, and then I, I I went to the local art college, and did stuff there, which was the same place as as uh, you know a lot of the specials went to the same place as well, um, which was actually great because I was doing my fanzine adventures in reality at the time. Um, and it meant that I could actually use their their photographic uh, stuff and, and screen printing and stuff. And although I was, I was only there for like um, a year, but I kept going in afterwards because they never really checked. You know, longer you look like a student. So you just need to scarf really and just look a bit dishevelled, which yes, did anyway. So um, that was no there was there was no security. There's no little things, was there? And you could, I, I, and you, you know, anyone could go into that dark room. It was dark. Um, as long as you, they vaguely recognised your face, which they did if you've been there for a year, then it was okay. Yes, absolutely. It was it was a different time. So yeah, so fanzine writing because I did sort of pick this book up a couple of years ago, which was very excited and ripped. Yeah. Rip Torn and Cut, which is just brilliant, which has got a great chapter by Claire, who started Sarah Records, which I thought was fascinating on very a lot of levels. So what was the the attraction of your the fanzine, the fanzine writer? I'm sure that's a Marky Smith line, isn't it? Or, uh, the, or half man, half pistol. Only fanzine writers were attractive, eh? That would have been made lots more exciting. Um yeah, so I mean, fanzines were obviously a, a, a punk thing. I mean, they started a lot more before that. Like 1930s, I think, was the first fanzine, but they were like science fiction fanzines and fan club magazines until until you got to about 1976 and Sniffing Glue uh, being regarded as being the first one and then a lot of other really good ones after that. So I was kind of reading about them in, like, you know, Sunday Times and those kind of things and and seeing little flashes of them coming up on television in, in articles on punk. So it was part of that. But I never really kind of uh, came across, even than buying the odd, the odd um, copy from places like Rough Trade, um, but I never came across anything local until 
uh, I went around a friend of mine, uh, a, a guy called Nigel, who I was at school with. He was like for school punk. Um, uh, and and he had good records, you know, like the, the Damned and the Dickies and all, all the band, all the bands that we both loved, um, which he could afford to buy because he had a Saturday job. I was too lazy to do jobs like that, so yes. listen to his records instead. Um, but he he had a copy of a fanzine called Alternative Sounds, which was produced in Coventry, and I'd never seen a local fanzine before, so I thought, wow, you know, a local fanzine, something that's close to. To home and I, I went into town on my way home and went to the record shop where he got it from and bought a copy and uh got in touch with the editor and and he said yeah you can you can write some reviews for me if you like and I thought, what write reviews because obviously media and press never allowed anybody to do that unless they've been to a journalistic college or or something else or they went to Eton um <laughs> so so yeah I, I did you know and I, I went I met them um uh, went to interview the stranglers and stuff like that and this was great and um you started getting freebies this is it isn't it freebies yeah i got backstage past the stranglers that was fantastic so i um i actually met john jack Bennell, who you know was a, bit, a little bit of a hero of mine and said to him I, I was, um i wanted to learn to play the bass and i said you know how do you what do you go about playing the bass and he said just fucking do it you know it's my fault it was like that JFBI kind of thing is almost like an iconic thing, isn't it? But it's like, yeah, yeah okay, that's that's a, a way to live your life, really. Um, yes. And I've followed that advice ever since, really, and I would strongly endorse that approach to anybody else. So um, with with um, the the adventures in reality, your fanzine, how many editions did you do? Was it 13 editions you put out? Yeah, so it's 13 editions. So I started in 1980, finished in 84. And then there was a further kind of edition in 2012, actually, which came out with a yeah, on an American label. They did like a, a vinyl reissue of some of the tracks by Band Stress I was in, and we did a, a special edition of Adventures in Reality to go, to go with that as an insert. But the main one was was 13 issues, and it started really small, little A5 handwritten thing, then it grew from there. And um, I really was very much into doing different formats and different packaging rather than just being your standard photocopied cut and paste jobby you know yes and did you and did you suddenly or or eventually become part of the fanzine community did you feel that 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 it was what you had hoped for did it bring you joy there very definitely was a fanzine community so there's there's a book that came out this year on Coventry fanzines are what I wrote um and there's 50 fanzines featured in that from from a, a lot of five-year period there's quite a lot but there was definitely a strong kind of interaction between them um, yes we used to meet up a lot and not just in Coventry but also nationally as well so there was there was distribution networks which um were kind of mail order informal uh, used to exchange copies of fanzines and then so I would sell someone's and they, they would sell mine and we'd, we'd just sell them in the same way we used to sell our own which is basically going to gigs or putting them into little local bookshops left-wing bookshops had yes we, we, we yes with with um exciting and angsty poetry yeah and a, and a feminist section which was always exciting and, and I saw uh, fanzines you know so yes I'm in London Freewheel 
um, there's a place called the Wedge Bookshop in Coventry that, that you know you could get your fanzine sold to 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 lefties who, generally speaking, would would you know be more uh, you know enthusiastic on uh, to, to buy these kind of things, and it was just great, you know. So, uh, so last year you brought out Adventures in Reality, the complete collection. Was this kind of there you go? It's and available yeah. from your website. Did um was this a project that you'd been thinking about, or what did you think during lockdown? Oh, okay. I've had a couple of great three weeks. We're all back to normal. Another three weeks. You think oh, this is not going to happen? Did you go in the loft and think I should just archive this? I've been meaning to do this for years. Um, actually, the the last, the most recent book to come out was the one that I've been doing for longest because that had been kind of you know brewing for a little while. Um, but the Adventures in Reality one was really I I just posted something on my Facebook page as an idle thought, as you do, just to kind of, you know, keep posting stuff every day. Um, and just said, you know, um, wish somebody put out, you know, a reprint of every issue of Fences in Reality, uh, just not expecting really to get much of a reaction and then just put a picture of one of the issues up. And then um, a guy called um, Rich Show from uh, Fourth Dimension, which is a record label and also a publisher, based in Poland, but he also did his own fantasy called Grim Humour when he was in England. Um, he just got in touch and said, yeah, I'll do it. Excellent. Um, and it's, it was that quick, really. So basically same day. And it's like, okay, so I just need to scan in 500 pages. Um, this is going to take a while and, and write the book. So I wrote the, the written content was done in two weeks um, in my kind of holiday in, 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 in lockdown because you can go anywhere. So I just sit there and of that garden you know it's quite sunny and um writing it and then just scanning it all in and then it and then it's just the rest of it was just doing the artwork but i very much wanted to make it a book about doing a fanzine not just a straight reprint so there's a lot of content in there about how you'd make a fanzine you know the john ball printing outfits and right uh you know how you'd reverse text and shrink it down using photocopies and rip up bits of paper for layouts and how many pages were your was your first one, and, and how many pages was the last one? I don't know. First one was about twenty. I mean, it didn't it didn't go into some great kind of encyclopedic side thing, which some did. Like Grim Humors was a good example. It got bigger and bigger and bigger until you could, you know, it's like a bookshelf kind of size thing. Yes. Um, but it it was the first one was only about twenty pages, I think. Um, so it so was, was it the classic A four folded? It, well, it was A five folded. Um, so that was tiny. Well, a, yeah, A4 folding to A5. So right. Yeah, right okay. A4 folded. Correct. Like a post um, it's just begun. Yeah. But the, there were some really small fanzines around, actually. There were ones that were like, you know, folded into smaller than A6 size. So, um, but uh, yeah, so it started out like that and, and then it went to A4 pretty quick, which is A3 folded over um because you, you can get very much on that that size thing yes photographs did you when you were looking at it did, had you forgot about the content and and some of the the interviews you'd done or some of the features uh yeah it came back to me pretty quick actually but um the thing that i noticed really was the fact that it was it was not terribly respectful of anybody particularly including the readers um uh or, or even the bands necessarily uh so the interviews were actually quite 
you know challenging they weren't like you know gushing kind of aren't you wonderful things they were more like a conversation um to we've uh with people and and you know even the interviews that i did after i finished doing the fanzine when i was doing them for magazines like spoil scratch you know it we would say we're going to break america and i'm saying seriously do you realize how big america is and that that kind of stuff because they'd make these kind of ridiculous statements and yes that uh, would <laughs> i would challenge them because a lot of musicians actually are quite incoherent really they they don't they're not always great at speaking particularly lead singers usually get the interviews and they're, and they're often not necessarily the most um eloquent members of the band strangely enough um so well, in, well interestingly enough when i listen to kind of bands now sorry to cut you off there but when I listen to young bands now they are completely like oh my god yes of course but 30 years later you'll probably you know if you're not dead because you do look a bit messed up already um you'll probably be quite interesting but at the moment you're just gibbering aren't you and I wouldn't imagine that all the bands I quite like back then that I interview now probably the same they were probably just gibbering mess thinking we were going to be huge you think (laughs) yeah I think that's true I think um a lot of fanzine writers do bands, and actually that's not a bad route because you get used to kind of expressing yourself, and then if you go into, into the music, you know, it means that you do at least have an, an opinion and, and you're thinking about everything about music, not just playing the music, but actually the, the visual side of it, the, the ideas behind it, um, what it means to people. Yes. A lot of people, and we were talking earlier about how you know, it, it's a very immersive thing at that age and it's all consuming. It certainly was, was for me. That's, that's you know, basically doing bands and fanzines and hanging around with them was all I did, um, you know, as, as we said earlier. Yes, I mean, if there was a gig so, coming up, you would spend, you know, th- that period of time listening to all the records all the time yeah. and sort of worrying about the whole the day of the gig was just, you know, consumed about getting there and sort of just spending as much time. And um, but you wouldn't dream of putting that amount of energy into it now, would you? Really? No, and and also going to gigs and having no idea how you were going to get home, <laughs> and often not getting home. So you just end up wandering around. It's quite dangerous streets, really. Yes, this is sleeping on, on train platforms. You know, just... wandering around. Yes, and realise you missed the train. You have to wait until the morning and. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it was quite, yeah, I know, you just wouldn't, we would we would be so horrified at the thought about that. Just set off into the, into the world yonder, you know, to, to go and see, I don't know, Killing Joke or someone at some place miles from anywhere, like, you know, like Cromer uh, and places like, like that, you know, that, these are little places in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yes, there was a fantastic book, wasn't there, that came out, which was um, West Runton, the West Runton. West Runton Pavilion, yeah. Which was, um, I mean, which I didn't know because it's got this iconic thing. But at the back, it's just got lists and lists and lists of the gigs. And it's like... Everybody played there. Everybody, and bands that you thought, did they, you know, who weren't even, you know, because it's like, oh, it's a punk and all the punks played there. But then then you look at all the other bands as well as all the punks and you think, Jesus, cheesy, crazy. Um, they they were really amazing. There you go. It's It was just whoever was the booking person really just put everybody on and um west runton if you've yeah if you were a teenager in west runton billy know, boots you know billy boots. i wouldn't <laughs> want to be there now but um yeah well it's okay for retirement i guess so as yeah. the 80s was trucking on so you would sort of had you, you left 
college. Wait, so did you go into a band, did you say, as well? Uh, yeah, so there was there was a few bands. There was um, So I was involved with a band called Attrition, which was also formed by the editor of, or former editor of Alternative Sounds. Um, so there was, there, was, there was a strong link there, and we um, we were good friends anyway. Um, but I was, rather than being a musician in that, I was basically doing all of the visuals. So if you remember the Human League, they had like slides and things playing over the band. And when I saw the Human League, I thought, that's great. You know, I can do that. And it means I can get to go out and go on tour without needing to learn to play an instrument. Um, so it's fantastic. So, um, you know, I did that and that took me with them around Europe as well, you know, to different places. And also at the same time, I had my own band, which was called Stress, which was a two-piece electronic band. Right. With a fellow fanzine editor from the Neaton. So there's a link there, isn't there? So, um, and, you know, we, we we played, you know, a lot of the same places and things like that. We did one album um, and we did uh, a, a vinyl album. We, we did a few more, some cassette, they've all come out on on vinyl since several times over with extra tracks and things but um yeah you know it's um i also had a label at the same time as well which um was releasing records and cassettes yes i saw you you've got the, your whole discography here this is your adventures in reality recordings yes so it's, it started as a spin-off um i got demos in i thought they were quite good but they weren't released so i thought i'd release them just on cassette to, uh, as a spin-off from the magazine and then we did some more stuff and then event, eventually the last issue of Adventures in Reality in 1984 was was effectively a magazine and cassette package, but it had like SBK and Test Department, a lot of it of electronic bands on, and it just sold loads. You know, for, God, you really had your finger on the zeitgeist at this point, didn't you? Yeah, it's kind of lucky, I guess. But um, also, you know, I'd, I think the electronic bands that like, you know, Test Department, Flopping Grist and that, um, they were really the equivalent to the punk bands, really, because they were doing stuff which was more confrontational. So the punk stuff by that time had become a little bit cliched. Um, and the electronic music, because it was still relatively um, early on, it, you know, it, it was it was played by people that, you know, hadn't got a lot of money on very basic equipment, and it, it felt very much like, early punk must have felt I can't really speak from experience on that because I wasn't an yes but but how I, I imagine it would have felt um so it was it was very much like I wanted to be part of that and also you know, I was in an electronic band I was associated with those bands so we were coming across them all the time how did you start your record label was it um was it I, I know I've done an interview with quite a few people Actually, from the indie label world, I know Glass Records is a bit different and Creation, but like the Pink Label and Sarah Records, there was there was a lot of kind of mistakes and just kind of enthusiastic kind of amateurism that sometimes went on. But, you know, it still did lots of good stuff. So did you pick it up very quickly or did you get some advice of how to run it? No, no I've got no advice on how to run it. I, I just did cassettes at first and... Then when I went down to Rough Trade with a few cassettes, thinking they might buy a few, they just bought, they, I just like, you know, copied a hundred up and they just said, yeah, we'll take them. Can I have another 500, please? And I said, what? <laughs> so um, I, then I had to go, right, I can't possibly copy 500 cassettes myself on two tape recorders. 
um, I'm going to have to look at how to get these duplicated. So then, then you start to go into duplication, not cassettes first, and then record pressing plants like making was one that was there. And then you think, okay, this is starting to cost a bit more money. I need distribution. Rough trade, can you help me? They had a thing called the cartel, which yes, um, the the cartel was, was a, a a bunch of different record labels and shops um, that did a, like a distribution network, and um, they put me in touch with Bax Records in Norwich. Nice. Who then said, "Yeah, okay, we'll we'll do this deal," which they was called a manufacturer and distribution deal, which meant they basically paid for the pressing, and they distributed it, and I paid for the recordings. Um, so it's splitting the cost really. Um, which which was great because it made you got guaranteed distribution and you knew you could get it pressed. You just had to stump up for the recording, which I used to use a studio, which was used by again lots of experimental bands and others like like you know Killing Joke and people like that. My In- God, this this is a sharp learning curve in the world of business, commerce, and marketing. Yeah, my mastering was done at a place called Utopia Studios, which um, used to do a lot of the bigger bands. So when I was mastering at my experimental um, compilation records there in one studio, you had like Paul McCartney in the next studio mastering stuff. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say I, I met him, you know, he's at the coffee machine and I was confused up behind him, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> he might um, have been doing that classic album, Give My give my Regards to Broadway, which was... His 80s work, we loved it so much. <laughs> it's really expensive. I mean, I, I, it, mastering was like, you just like, this is the cutting room kind of thing. So it was just like two hours there and that, to do that cost as much as the recording cost. But actually it was really important because it, it to get a really good cut on a record makes it sound good. If you don't, it just, it jumps and skips and it doesn't sound very good. So um, it was an important thing to do so um yeah it was a steep learning curve and obviously cash flow was always a problem and that's what finished it off in the end you know i i, I couldn't basically kind of finance it without going down the, down the route of, of of a more major thing which i probably wasn't really cut out to do yes what was your because you did various a few various compilations didn't you did you what what was your last release you put together for the um the label uh let's see it probably was the uh stress album actually was the last one I, I did we did some cds after that but um that was probably the last big full full release and was that big wheel the big wheel that's correct yeah that, that's been reissued on a, a a russian label which so you won't be able to get it now of course <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the time russia was, was okay um uh that's that's come out and then you know there's just been a reissue on an american label as well called dark entries fantastic so did you learn about because i always find this fascinating the world of publishing and ownership of music did did the did the artists keep the kind of the copyright so to speak yes so i I, i've i've never signed copyright to any of my own stuff over to anybody i've always kept that um so various you know contractual things people will send you will say you know they have in perpetuity and you have and i always cross those line those lines out and they, they never kind of insist on it so that's okay which means that you can release it but fully the artist it was always a straight 50 50 split and they kept all the rights so yes um, 
I'd, I re- I'd relied on that as far as I was concerned. They were doing me a favour by allowing me to release stuff on it. So I wasn't going to try and screw them. Um, no, absolutely. Um, and also, it's ex- it must have been very exciting as well. It was, it, yeah. I've got, I, I, you know, it's not a career path that you kind of go down because it, it's just you, you do it because you enjoy doing it and you love you love doing it. But the big love about it was the kind of the people and the the environment as much as the music. I would say, I mean, the music was there, but it's just part of everything that was around you. So it was just a, a kind of big, you know, immersion really. Yes. Well, in in that period, and I suppose the 90s, but possibly before, but I can't remember. But there was the kind of there were we did have the gatekeepers, didn't we? We had the sort of three, you know, weekly music papers plus Rackle Mirror. And then we had John Peel, Janice Long, Kid Jensen, who were good. And obviously people like Tommy Vance as well and various other specialists. One and every every town and city in the UK would have a alternative indie night. So bands did have a little bit of traction to get some sort of progression which i think is always kind of important i think that's why there was quite a lot of scenes in the that period because you know you could sort of suddenly you know almost think you're on tour just because you've got a few dates around the country because of you know a couple of releases or you know if you've got john peel session and or john peel play it, it just gave people that little bit of a a kind of a step up really and there's a lot of great small venues i mean you could do a a tour just around your local area in the Midlands, you know, you could definitely do like 20 or even 30 dates just playing uh, some of the, the venues that there because there was a lot of them and they were in some very old places, community centres, even the police um, assembly hall used to put on big yes. skinhead bands. I think they probably thought it would ingratiate them with, with them, but it didn't, of course. But, um, Princess so, Charlotte. We, I remember John Pill always yeah. mentioned Princess Charlotte. So... That was the classic, wasn't it, really? Yeah, so people played in prisons, didn't they, in schools and um, all sorts of places, you know, diff- different institutions you, that you'd think were the most bizarre places for people to play. But um, they, they used to put thing, things on, you know, and I saw some quite extreme gigs at, like, schools, you know, sixth form nights and stuff like that, you know, and you'd get, like, um, you know, electronic bands or there was a school down the road from a girls school where you had some punk bands playing there you went along to, to there it was a good gig actually they're very enthusiastic yes absolutely absolutely i think people you know yes it was it was a good time for that that kind of scene so then what happens for you for the rest of the 80s as we march on towards the poll tax with red so, wedge in between so um I was still doing my uh, stress through the 80s and then um, that kind of uh, sp- split. I think this band's always difficult, aren't they? You kind of fall out with people and when you're in a two-piece band, you know, there's nowhere to go really, isn't it? <laughs> so, so that's it. And then I, I formed almost immediately with the band that supported us at our last gig, which was in London. It's a big festival called the Glass Bell House. We were, I was organising with my partner, Cleo, um, with loads of bands on it. It's a two-day festival at this place in Stratford. Um, and the uh, stress were headlining on the last night of that. And the support band for that was, well, one of the support bands was a, a band, a Norwich band called Garner Delights. And um, they were also on, on the way out. So we kind of got the remnants of that and me. And, and uh, we just formed a new band called Dance Naked, which was... Um, 
the name actually came from um, Viz Comic. Uh, right. Was, um, they had a, a, an article in there, a spoofy article about pagans dancing naked around the flickering flames of a pagan campfire. And we thought, yeah, that sounds good, dancing naked around the... Yeah, we'll, we'll do that because it was an analogy for also being very open and honest and being your true self. So it's like, you know, you're, you, it's a joyous celebration of you as you, which is what naked is really, isn't it? It's without any kind of, you know, clothing. And it, so it was an analogy rather than literally dancing naked. Everybody no. talks about that, of course, but we said, no, we don't. There um, you go. Well, it could have been, because I think I went to see, was it The Fall with Marky e. Clark? Um, when they did that collaboration, and I think they all had their bottoms shown, not Marky Smith or Brits, but the the dance troupe. Or yeah. so it was kind of a thing. But also during the late eighties, there was a big push towards that kind of new age spiritual stuff, which I'm sure you were getting very excited about with ley lines and earth energy or not. Uh, well, we, I, I think Cleo certainly, my partner, had she was very knowledgeable on. Uh, all that stuff, including Crowley and uh, all that, all that that kind of um, occult stuff, as, as well as, as paganism. So, and of course, Goth was was still quite big at the time. So we wanted to combine the kind of the synth Goth stuff, which it kind of was at the time. So we didn't have a guitarist. Uh, it was just I was playing bass and and Keith and synths, and, and we had we had synths and a drummer and a drum machine at the same time. So it was a a combination of kind of percussion synths and and so was it was it a three piece house. you chloe and roger Leo, it was um gonna pronounce her name right so she's getting annoyed um so no there was there was it, it went up to a five piece at one point so alex novak who i think you've interviewed previously oh yes um, he was actually in it for a short period of time um as, as a second singer so we had, we had two singers and then we also had a, a drummer called called Kerry um so uh but he wasn't like a, a drummer sitting down at a drum kit you know with, with your toms it was it was standing up playing largely toms so there was no kind of bass drum there or cymbals it was just all um you know snares and toms right i think this, the the first time i saw the pogues they were sporting elvis costello i think the drummer just stood there and played one drum all night yeah so you can do and it makes it um a quite different sound and, and it's more interesting and it's more visual as well because it means the drummer doesn't need to sit at the back. No, and, absolutely. Um, so you, you, you can you can be more more upfront, which seemed more democratic to me. Yes. Did they because the because you have got a very intense period, didn't you, for sort of the late 80s? You put out two albums quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, we did. So I think you did in, in those days. You, you just tended to do stuff and it and and it came out quite quickly seems to take i mean now you can do you can put stuff out incredibly quickly online but if you want to do it on vinyl it seems to take forever um yes <laughs> it takes a long time to get it pressed and and there's a lot of people trying to do it so uh yeah it, it did come out quite quickly um which which was good um and then there's, there's been stuff reissued of course uh afterwards all the dance naked stuff has been reissued on a, a labeling in germany did it how do you pronounce that label uh, 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 Ulf and Wiedergaber. That's so impressive. Uh, <laughs> I can see it on the discography and it's like, that, wow, that's. I think it means kind of uh, record and play. Of course. Play there back. you go. 
and that's kind of point not. of change. So why did the band break up at this stage? With two late, with two release, two releases, the the kind of you know you were definitely yeah we kind of um, I I think we kind of like a lot of bands you kind of run out of steam a little bit, um, so we, we kind of whittled down a little bit in size down to a three piece, um, and then we, we tried to, to do some stuff. But I, I think probably we're trying to do it all ourselves and. Uh, it's very difficult to manage yourself and put your own releases out and things like that as well. So yeah, it happened to the Smiths, didn't it? I mean, no manager, terrible idea. Uh, yeah, I think Smiths probably had a bit more success than we did, but uh, <laughs> just a bit. Um, but yeah, so I think it, it, that's that's why it kind of um, halted. And also, uh, that whole being on the dole thing was kind of finishing then, so you had to you had to make a living a, a little bit well we were in, in london it's not a cheap place to live so no restart uh, interviews uh, can be quite tedious can't they oh yeah no i didn't do that i just went and got a job so um but I, so i you know you needed to have that which could put a bit of a cramp on my style a little bit for that because it limited the, the time to do that stuff so um i'd, I'd moved more into into the, we did a lot of the stuff in any kind of new age pagan area in those years when everybody assumed i'd disappeared into the wilderness and then popped up again you know um in you know the uh, early 2020s so what oh yeah so so the 90s it's quite interesting i didn't i couldn't believe it there's a few artists and bands i've interviewed who'd had a very had a sort of quite a similar moment with me as me we're doing the 90s got very into that pagan world and it was a member of johnny hates jazz who i to be honest didn't really like the band but he was such a nice guy and I, he got disillusioned with the amount of success and just hated it all and yeah. didn't want to be part of it and just, you know, formed a drumming, one of those Jimby drumming groups in Bath, I think, and just no one knew who he was. And he, you know, though he'd... Yeah, I've, I've got a, a loft full of Jimby drums. I don't really play them anymore because you need people to play them. But yes. mm. yeah, we, we did those kind of things like the drum workshops. So they're quite fun, actually, um, to do. And... Everyone, everyone I know had a Jimby drum and then they got into the, playing the Baran unless they went to Ireland, then they called it Boron because they would have been a bit pretentious, but yeah. that's what you do when you've been to Ireland. <laughs> so your, your Jimby drumming period, so how long did this last? So that was that was a few years actually because we were, we were doing it to try and make some, some money and also doing other um, things as well. So there was, you've got these things called the Mind, Body, Spirit Festivals, which are still going, but... Yes. It, at the time, there was this big one in London, and we used to, we used to do that because we knew the people that ran it. And you had a, a lot of the kind of trance and acid house stuff overlapped a little bit with the edges of that as well because it had a similar kind of vibe to it. Did you uh, go to camps? Because there was the there was the Welsh dance camp. There was also another one called the Tribe of Doris, and then there was TB Valley in the Welsh lands. And and, and people, that. yeah, I was going to Templar Psychic Youth stuff at the same time, so. Um, that was a bit different, obviously, but uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't tend to go full on to, to that. So, but um, you know, we, I think it's quite interesting because you had a big mix of kind of ethnic type of music there, which was actually very interesting. Look, so it's kind of like a WOMAD type thing. I, yes, I, I mean something. cultural appropriation before we even knew what it was was happening, wasn't yeah. it? Because yeah, and, and also, did did you people. did you incorporate the the uh, didgeridoo at this stage in your musical uh, sonic soundscape? Yes, did we too? Yeah, I did didgeridoo, but um, 
they just it's like this blowing down the drain pipe isn't it really so um it can be quite quite hard work on it yeah there's a, a circular breathing technique you have to have to keep it going because it's got to be continuous which takes a bit of learning to do but once once you get it you can just keep going forever and people do but i think you have to be pretty stoned to for it to sound really good oh, so stoned yeah so so you're you're 90 so what other path were you following you know was it just mostly new age trance ley lines full moon parties uh yeah well that kind of earth mystery stuff i find quite interesting and actually um a lot of people do so um, I mean, Ratscape is from the Damned, actually. Um, he he got very much into that, and because we we kind of know him a little bit, and um, and he he wrote his book on, um, you know, looking for for, for, for King Arthur and stuff in Rennes the Chateau in France, because um, I think you know he had a connection with something called the Sornier Society, which is very much Earth Mysteries, and it's that you know. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Julian Cope was... Yes, God, book. I've got his book here yeah. somewhere. Yes, I've got it there. Two fantastic books on that. And, you know, we, we travelled around different places in the world going to these things. Um, France is really good for that, Normandy. And obviously Cornwall's very good for it as well. But there's, there's other sites elsewhere and Crete. And there's a lot of stone circles on the um, Isle of Lewis. I remember going there and seeing the stones of Calendish. Which was places on Malta and Crete, you know, there's not stone circles there, temples, but um, there's a lot of stuff there. And he, even, you know, uh, you know, going to it to main, mainland Italy and stuff like that, you can find a lot of stuff. Yes. Quite interesting because you, you can you kind of hunt it down with your ordnance survey maps and things. We used to end up in some very out of the way places looking for these old temples which are halfway up mountains and stayed in some bizarre little villages where there was like you know just one place to stay in one room in it and it was like the furniture was made out of like old coffins and uh, you know it's just weird so that kind of appealed to my my sense of the bizarre really yes well yes the the Crowley years I know it's funny isn't it really that whole world did you do the Ouija board at all uh yeah, we we did. We've got Ouija boards, but um, I never really got much from them. Messages. Um, some some people did actually get them, and um, we did see some quite bizarre uh, things. You know, like fogs and things that appeared in, inside when it was clear outside. Very strange. I'm sure there's probably a scientific explanation somebody will offer for that, but it, it, I couldn't work it out at the time. No, so, but it's, it's, it it does make your heart pump. Uh, pulse. It makes you wonder if something in it, you know. So um, it's easy to poo-poo it and go, "Yeah, it's all nonsense, isn't it?" Really, but um, yeah, I, I enjoy doing it. I think. Yes. yes. So the nineties, very exciting. And then what happened for the? Oh, you know, after we freaked out about the millennium bug, but thankfully nothing fell from the skies. Um, so what happened for yes. that next decade? That was a bit of a hoax, wasn't it? The millennium bug. Lots of people <laughs> made money out of it, though. Um, yes. They didn't see COVID coming there, did they? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Didn't plan for that one. Um, So, yeah, so I I guess it kind of come full circle. So once I started getting into like the the later 20s, really, 2010, 2012, um, started to get people still trying to contact me, trying to get hold of old releases. Have you got any of these things left and et cetera? Um, And, of course, I I didn't. So... um, 
some of the people that were contacting me actually were people that were running labels themselves. So I just said, well, you put it out if you want it. Um, just just do it again. And it, and as, you know, these things happened, they went, okay. So um, so we re-released a lot of the, the stuff from there we, in new packaging and things, which and remastered it all, which I was a bit like a kind of return for me because it meant um, you know, remastering stuff in uh, studios and and doing the artwork and and things just to prove I haven't completely lost it, and then doing the 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 fanzine books and writing writing those, and then uh, you know your your listeners won't be able to see obviously all the kit that I've got behind me, but I didn't get rid of all of my keyboards um, and equipment. You know, so I've still got a lot of them. So yes, you have got a lot of equipment behind so. you. Actually, you could you could have been. Rick Wakeman, yeah. a younger version People of Rick. That, yeah, <laughs> this thing called MIDI, which means you don't have to have six hands to play them all. No, but it's a very nice stack on your right side. So yeah, so so are you still making music? God, that's such a yes. Sad. yes. <laughs> How did I yes. guess? How did I guess? Yeah, strangely <laughs> enough, yes, it's not. <laughs> so these these things behind me are all kind of eighties vintage since a lot of them. So. Moog prodigies and uh, Juno 106s and things like that, which will mean things to people that know that know shit things. Um, but yeah, so there's there's an app called called uh, Senestra, which um, is myself. It's again it's another two piece and uh, a, a guy from Austria who's who's got his own app called called uh, Hiroshima Bend or Hiroshima Bend, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, so and that's doing electronic stuff and we've, we've recorded my album which is um is doing the rounds at the moment so that that, that will come out but it's based on this the stanford prison experiment so it's basically do you know about that stanford prison well, just give us a clue because um it's, you never know if adam curtis has mentioned it i might remember it otherwise i'm lost it's quite well known in, in the kind of late 60s early 70s American universities had this thing about doing these experiments to, to see how people psychologically could be manipulated. And it was because of what happened in the Second World War with people saying, oh, I was only following orders and doing terrible things. Oh, so they think they're electrocuting a person so in the other was, room. Yeah, there was a guy called Milgram, or Professor Milgram probably, who who did that where they thought they were, they were electrocuting somebody to a certain extent. They would have effectively have killed them. Um, because they were told to do it it's by a man in a white coat and they didn't actually do it it was an actor pretending but it but showed the person still did it didn't they the person still did it yeah some of them didn't some of them bailed out but some of them went all the way into the extent of pressing this buzzer when they would have be, had a lethal do- dose of electricity to people when they'd long gone silent you know they basically would have been zapping a dead body um, but they carried on doing it because they were told it's okay, you can carry on doing that by the man in the white coat. First, yes. uh, they shouldn't have done that. Stanford Prison Experiment was a similar thing where they uh, asked for volunteer students in California, half to be prisoners and half to be prison guards. And they set up an experiment where they got the Californian kind of highway patrol would actually, li- re- actually go and arrest people in their homes in real police cars handcuff them, take them down to the police station and book them in. But then instead of taking them to prison, they would they would take them to Stanford University where they'd, they'd rigged up a prison in the basement of the psychology um, campus there 
and they got some of the other students to be the guards and they gave them uniforms and didn't give them any rules. They just said, you're the guards, you know, and let, let them make it up themselves. And this was supposed to run for two weeks, but actually finished after six days because it just got crazy really quickly. Um, that the guards became very sadistic and started punishing and they had a, 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 a like a, a cupboard that was like a solitary confinement hole used a lot of people in. They, they took their, their clothes away from them and, you know, kind of, uh, and, and their bedding and stuff. And the prison started to rebel and, and you know, uh, not quite riot, but, but you know, resist. And some of them had almost mental breakdown. So it was, it was a good example of how quickly people can change given authority or, you know, in a situation. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen that many times over in, in, uh, you know, even now, you know, what, what people can, can do in, in, in war situations and situations of control, or even perhaps in a in a pandemic. You know, we've we've had ridiculous instances of the police checking people's bags in case they've got any DIY painting equipment in there because it's against the law, or chasing them in helicopters across the moors um, because they're breaking the law. You know, and in a helicopter, you down there, you know, why are you walking on the moors, you know, yes. lockdown, it's like there's no one else around but you. Um, so, But I suppose as well, last, wasn't two years ago now with Trump, you know, the riot on the, yes, you um, know, that's, you know, where things start. influenced. So influenced, aren't they? Yes, and I know. Authority figures are a very powerful thing and you give people authority, they, they will almost invariably abuse it. Um, but they would do some terrible things because they were just obeying orders. So anyway, the the album is is about that. It covers those six days with different soundtracks for each one, um, and it it comes or it will come special edition in a as a CD in in a a uh, a cell. So the case is actually like a cell. It's got prison bars, right? CD inside it. Um, so you have to break the CD out out of its jail cell to play it. God, has that been a design headache? Yes, because it's all 3D printed. So um, <laughs> fortunately, my my, uh, uh, my uh, colleague, who's, who goes by the name of, of, of Poppy38, is a designer as well. There's a designs for all of the books I've done. Um, he, he was able to, to do that because he's a clever person. So... Um, he's from Texas, actually, originally, but he lives in Austria now. Right, blimey. So that's another amazing project. But just because you mentioned it earlier, but we should also talk about it, your um, your last publication, which was the one you'd been working on long, mainly because you had to collect all the fanzines, Tales from the Ghost City, also available on Fourth Dimension. This is your collection, Not uh, you, you archived something like, was it 50 fanzines from the... The Coventry yes. punk scene from 1979 to 1985. So it's Tales from the Ghost Town. What did I say? City. Ghost City, yeah. So this is obviously a reference to Ghost Town. Uh, <laughs> so that's the link. It's Coventry. Yes. Um, and yeah, so uh, in fact, one of the specials did the foreword for it. So it's Horace, who's the bass player. Um, it's got 50 fanzines in it. So basically, uh, obviously, I, I was doing my own one there. And I still had some, but fanzines are ephemeral things. You know, they're photocopied or or printed, but they're, they're paper. They're like newspapers. You know, people don't keep them. They go in. They were never really intended to last. But actually, you're now 
in hindsight, you realise they were an art form. Yes. They were a, a document of the time. And particularly local scenes, which don't really exist now because of the internet and things. You don't have that kind of local connection. But having fanzines that documented a local scene is, is almost the only document of it. And also it gives you a window, because you've got touring bands going through and other things going on, it gives you a window into kind of what, what it was really like, then, as opposed to the slightly more rose-tinted kind of views that you tend to get looking back now and all more academic tomes that, that will kind of um, be talking about the social relevance of it, etc. But this is uh, more kind of the, the, what it was actually really like. Um, Proventry was unusual in that it had a lot of fanzines. London had a lot, obviously, but no other town really in England had as many going at the same time as bigger kind of scene that had fanzines. And they, they kind of trans, transcended just being about music and that there was a lot of different ones you know they they some of them were like a bit spoofy some of them were a bit more political some of them sprang up for one issue only a lot of them were produced by kids that were still at school as a form of free expression and rebellion I guess um so they varied tremendously from really kind of very basic scruffy things to more polished affairs yes um, so I thought yeah you know you've got to catch this because it's all every time I loft is, or garage is cleared out, these things go in the bin and they're gone forever. And no. um, so I, I spent 10 years doing this book, collecting it, but also tracking down the editors of some of the, the main ones. They so must it, have been freaked out when they got an email from you. The one was in Australia. <laughs> um, <laughs> was work, a lot of my working in media, actually. Um, one was in uh, something in Denmark and Turkey. But a lot of them are still working in media. So they, they're writing for The Guardian or they're working for the national um, kind of equivalent to the BBC in, in um, Australia. So, uh, yeah, some of them were, were surprised, but um, Facebook is quite a good way of contacting people like that. This is true. It is interesting, this, this the passing of time, which is somewhere between 25 to 30 years, but in your case, probably a bit longer, where, you know, I don't think... We, we appreciate it. We just move on. We do lots of stuff. And then I don't think it's about just rose-tinted sunglasses. I think there's, as you probably alluded to, you know, the idea that actually this is really great archival stuff that isn't going to be massively kind of, isn't going to appeal to the mass, but it will, will just have a real interest and relevance to various small groups around the area. Because obviously in the last, you've probably seen how many films have come up and out about music scenes from the 80s that you think yeah, there was one on Robert, Lo- Robert Lloyd, the King Rocker one. There was one on the Wedding Presents album, George Best, and there's been ones on the Chills and Go-Betweens and, and obviously books. And actually what you said there earlier, which was quite interesting, with this guy who was at the UEA for one year, he brought out these two books, which were these... Um, the ones on on just kind of flyers and stuff that he also thought were amazing artwork that no one else would have cared about. Yeah, no, I'd love to have that book actually. I haven't got it. But it is it is an absolutely you know obviously Barney Bubbles and then he brought out another one as well. But they are just like God, thank God you kept them and archived them. And if anybody ever wants to borrow them, he'll he'll let you have an exhibition as well. You know, and it's interesting because Kevin Cummings, who did all the photography, and he still does, but, you know, he did the sex business on Christmas Day in 1976 and then Joy Division. But he said, you know, no one was interested in those pictures. They're only like 
published them as books in the last couple of years, yeah. which gives you an indication that it's only for 40 years. Oh, yes, Joy Division. Oh, the Sex Pistols. Well, that's... There is something about that 40-year kind of cycle, isn't there? We were talking earlier. Yes. Uh, to the point where suddenly things become historical and valuable and iconic and people seem to really like the 80s still. So, um, you know... Well, I think it's also interesting because it's like who tells the story because when you listen to the 80s, told by people like Dylan Jones, it's, you know, Spandau Ballet, it's Live Aid, it's, you know, it's kind of Sade the face. And it's like, God, that's not my 80s at all. Whereas that actually, <laughs> there was, so, so it's kind of great that people have, you know, sort of redrawn the narrative or rewritten the narrative. Because yeah. I think earlier this year, there was another compilation that came out on Birmingham bands called Unseen, post-punk Birmingham from 1978 to 1982, which, again, you know, just, you know, amazingly small bands. But actually quite a few members went on to bigger bands, including Duran Duran. So, um, yes, it's great that people are sort of not letting it all go into the recycling bin or landfill. Yeah, it's good that people do keep these things, you know. Um, Some people never seem to throw anything away because they've got, like, all sorts of... Things, but I think the the ephemera is actually I find rather interesting. All like you say, the little flyers and 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 big tickets, the the scribbled things that people throw away. You know that that uh, actually give you more of an insight than the polished final products. Yes. So for those people keen on this, are they both available on the Fourth Dimension Records website? Yes, they are. Yes. So. Um, the, the Tales from the Ghost Town book is sold pretty well, actually. Um, so, there, But there are, there are still a few left. I've got a few here as well. And there's still some of the Adventures in Reality, which is quite a chunky book. It's, um, But actually, it's a bargain, so do buy it. Um, and and that's, that's got a complete reprint, but that gives you a real insight into what it's like to do a fanzine as well. So, um, but, you know, both of those books, are, I mean, obviously, I think they're interesting. I'm going to say that, aren't I? But uh, other people have said that as well. Okay. Yes, but that's that's 500 pages. But actually, it's interesting because there's always kind of workshops on fanzines now, aren't there? I think, has the the youth picked up on fanzine workshop things? Uh, I think it's a different type of fanzine. So they, they tend to call them zines now rather than fanzines. But Right. Um, so they're very much a kind of a, it's an art school thing and a, and a form of expression. And they do lots of zine workshops where you can create your own zine. Um, but it, it doesn't, the connection between that and the kind of the local scene, like a music scene or something like that, isn't really as, as, as pronounced. Right. So it, even like when you had that, like uh, Riot Girl um, stuff, which was, you know, more feminist stuff, you, and you had lots of scenes associated with that. You had like a, a scene which kind of was, was part of it. But scene workshops now are, are kind of, they're artistic they sometimes they're there for therapeutic reasons uh things like, like that so I, I did take part in the, the zine week that coventry university had but all of the other people on there were doing things which were which were very very different to to me i was kind of another one out really um and they're, they're, they're very much doing them as one-off kind of workshops and um you know using different techniques to, to do them from you know, block printing and, uh, and other ways of creating your own, your own zine, even things that are more like origami, I would say, than a, a zine thing, because it was all Right, so it's brought in more of the, 
artistic paper folding experience, which is good. But the great yeah, thing is that that um, going back to Dance Naked, you're still with your partner. Theo, yes. Yeah, so I originally met her when she was managing this band, uh, Garden of Delights. Nate, they came down to London uh, to try and do uh, arrange some exchange gigs with uh, Patricia, and we, we had like a, a thing called the Terminal Kaleidoscope, which was a mail order thing with a band called The Legendary Pink Dots. Oh, God, yes. We sold stuff because I, I was living at their place at the time, um, their, their keyboard player's place, because I didn't have anywhere to live for when I moved down to London. Um, I was kind of basically vagrantly homeless, wandering around different places, including a place called the Ambulance Station. I don't know if you. Oh my God, the Ambulance Station! My God, you would have met um, my um, the beautiful the Hangman's beautiful daughters, wouldn't you? They were there. This band who um, who I recently interviewed. Oh, what is Cork? The they they ran it or the war come in the poor. There's a lot of different bands there. Right. The Inkers, early G- I think were, were some people that were there. It became legendary, really, the, the venue, didn't it? Because of lots yeah, of bands. Yeah. And I think Jesus and the Merry Chain, one of their first gigs was there as well. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't around for very long. I know we're digressing a bit now, but um uh it was in the old Kent Road in London and it, it wasn't popular with the locals, should we say. So Walking to and from it was a bit of a of a gauntlet sometimes, right? And they used to pour petrol through the um, the, the, the the door downstairs and set fire to it, so you come down in the morning, it'd be all burnt and smelling of petrol and things. But um, it it wasn't actually an ambulance station; it was a fire station. <laughs> it's called the old ambulance station because it wasn't; it was a fire station. So it had a big hall downstairs where the old fireman used to do, and of course, it was fa- fairly fireproof, so that was fortunate. And um, then the band used to play in the big hall downstairs, and um, but it was a squad, so it wasn't you know nobody paid rent or anything. So. Yes, it was never going to last long. That's amazing. So yes, I mean, where were we? Yes, you can get these two two publications on this website, and yes, you can you can add that. And you were saying about me meeting Cleo, and yes, we asked. Yes, that. that's uh, it. There you go. The band. That's it. The narrative of the band and 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 her managing the Garden of Delights. Yeah, and then... she, she was in Dance Naked. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so I met her then, and we just corresponded for uh, a little bit, and then and then we then we hooked up, and we've been together ever since. Um, so you know, I, I think we've had a conversation that's lasted that long. Um, so when, when that conversation finishes, then that'll be it. But I don't think it ever will really. So. So we've only ever had one conversation, basically, which has lasted a very long time. <laughs> That's great. That's very good, actually. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there any little words of advice you would have given them if you could have done? That question. I think I would I would echo um, what John Jackmanell said. I'd just, just fucking do it. Just do it. Yeah. Just don't, don't stop. There you go. That's just, fantastic. Yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. Yes, and if anyone wants to find your material, do you ha- do you have a website, or is it kind of on Facebook and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, I used to have a, w- a website, but um, I've let that kind of lap- lapse a bit because uh, it wasn't getting enough traffic, really. So, um, yeah, so but you, you you can find me on Facebook. Um, there is an Adventures in Reality uh, group as, as well there, and um, you can uh, you're very welcome to to email me if you want to. Oh yes. 
David, what's your email address? Uh, it's, uh, uh, I'll just spell it out one time. Alan Ryder one. So it's A L A N R I D E R and the number one at AOL.com. Classic. That's a classic. Anyway, they'll find you. They can always me on AOL. Yeah, there you go. Well, this has been brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much for your time for this. And this is, yeah, great to 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 um, organise this. So, yeah, if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always put it on your Facebook page. And then people definitely can do that. I will, I will definitely do that. Yes, that would be good, actually. But thank you again. And um, do you still have six cats and rescued hedgehogs? I Yes, I, uh, I've got six cats, um, all troublemakers, each one in their different ways. Hedgehogs not at the moment because they're out for the summer now. But um, when it gets to about November time, we'll we'll we'll, we'll see who needs rescuing and overwintering. They're too small to survive. Yes, they'll come in and and um, fill, fill up our back room with them again. A home for hedgehogs. Yes, I know it's very yeah, exciting. They need our help. So yeah, I know we all. We all, hedgehogs, folks. We all also just, we, we all supporting hedgehogs at the yeah. moment. I'm I'm just worried they're not going to get enough water and. Yes, I think they'll be they'll be okay. Just uh, my advice would be slow down for hedgehogs. Don't run away. Oh God, yeah, no yeah. one should ever run over a hedgehog. They're, they're sacred animals. Right, look, thank you ever so much, and um, keep in touch. Thank you very much. Yeah, take care good. there. Thanks, Thanks so. again. Cheers. Bye bye. That dear listener is how you end a conversation abruptly, professionally. Anyway, I'd like to leave that bit in because it's um, makes me smile. And also, we talked about hedgehogs. This is uh, if you're wondering. Recorded July 2022. It was very hot at the time, so um, we're worried about hedgehogs. Anyway, look, enough of that. That was me in conversation with Adam Ryder. More information, which I'll probably repeat, and we've repeated as well. But, um, yeah, author of two, and probably much more as well, but two books that you need to get, Ventures in Reality, The Complete Collection, um, which is his fanzine, and also Tales from the Ghost Town, both on Fourth Dimension. And that's all about the commentary punk fanzine period 79 to 1985 indeed it is anyway this has been the c86 show david eastall if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive otherwise why did you bother um also yeah all these have been archived as well so you can find those on spotify itunes Podbeam. it's true anyway look have a great week stay safe